0: Hey, y'all. Okay, if you've been here for more than six months, you know I have a terrible relationship with this microphone, so please pray with me today. Okay. We have it on standby, okay. Awesome. Well, good morning. So far we're off to a terrible start because there's an echo already. Why is it only me? This is what? Okay. Okay, can you hear me okay? Okay, awesome. Uh, please feel free to shout out if it starts sounding funky. I will gladly pick up this mic. We're good on we're on good terms, so we'll be fine. Um, but good morning. I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. I actually wasn't supposed to preach today. Uh, someone got COVID, um, uh, but I told Marshall I was happy happy to switch, and I did that also completely forgetting that I had a newborn. So. Um, <laughs> What I'm asking for today is a lot of grace and mercy. Um, I, I, this isn't the most prepared sermon I have, but it's good. Um, and the only, thing, the only thing worse than an unprepared sermon is a long unprepared sermon. So it's not gonna be long. Um, but Irene and myself have been out for, for about a month or so and uh, because we just had our first child. Um, so everyone, I think we have a picture somewhere. There's a picture. There we go. Uh, Meet Amelia Anae McLaughlin. She's about to be a month old. She was born February 21st. So today is extra special for me because not only is it her first time at church, but it's the first time I'm preaching to my child who totally understands everything that's going on. Uh, But We actually, so I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, February 21st was a Tuesday, and the next day was a Wednesday, and that happened to be the worst storm in 80 years in Portland. I don't know if you were around for that, if you remember that. If it was too traumatic, I understand, and you blocked it out of your heads. Uh, But I was looking out at the snow, and we had another snowstorm like three months ago, right? Right. And so that one, I drove in that. I still worked that day, and I was like, "Oh, it's going to be the same. We'll be fine." So it, you know, it's like six p.m. now, and I'm looking at the snow. I'm like, "Okay, we we either go now or we wait another night because we could stay for 48 hours." But then I was like, "Well, it could be icy in the next day," and I was like, "Then we're really in trouble." So I was like, "Let's just get out of here." We wanted to get home. We were tired. Irene had been in labor for 29 hours. Uh, it was just a, a long time. So we we're like, let's just get out of here. So we get out and we turn. We, we were in Portland at Good Samaritan and we turn right onto 23rd Street and we went uh, two blocks in an hour. And as we were about to turn onto the I 5, this guy's walking up talking to all the cars. And I wind up on and I was like, hey, what's the I 5 like? And he said, oh, I just abandoned my car. Oh. <laughs> And he was like, I, I, I hadn't moved in three hours, and I was like, this is great. Um, this is awesome. I have a newborn in the car. We've got half a bottle of water, no food. So we decided not to go, and we're like, okay, let's, turn, let's call the Holiday Inn, which was right across the road we called it. The first thing they say when we called was, sorry, we're fully booked. And uh, the same thing was said for every single hotel and motel in the entire Northwest area. So um, so, I'm driving along the road, just doing fine. Um, I have this newborn in the car, this wife that just had a long labor. Where All of us are exhausted. And I'm like, the roads are getting worse. I can't drive on them anymore. So we're like, I was like, okay, let's call the hospital. And um, let's find out if we can just go back. So we call them. And the nurse is like, let me talk to the supervisor. The supervisor says, no. Uh, because there wasn't a medical reason. So um, we were like, cool, cool. Um, So I'm driving, freaking out, calm though, very calm on the outside. (laughs) And I'm driving and I'm like, okay, well, let's just go back to the hospital. Let's go to the parking garage. It's at least we can go to the garage and we'll stay there. And if worse comes to worse, we go to the emergency room. We'll tell them there's something wrong with Amelia and then we just won't leave. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER so we're in the parking garage and I said, okay, let's call one more time. So I call labor and delivery one more time. And I was like, listen, we just discharged an hour ago. And, um, and I was like, I've got a child here. I've got a newborn baby. You guys know her. You know us. Can you please let us in? So I'm gonna get back to the story in a little bit. But this, um, but this morning, we're continuing our sermon series on the cross of Christ. And how many of you have been here last week or the week before? Okay, or nearly all of you, okay. Uh, so we started off on this, the cross as the sign. Last week we did sacrifice. And if you didn't watch last week's sermon, it was phenomenal. Ellie did such a great job talking about sacrifice. And today we're talking about the cross as being victorious. Um, and we're going to go into a deep dive of what that looks like. And actually what we're talking about today is an atonement theory. And um, So I picked a really good week to be unprepared to talk about the atonement theory because it's very uncontroversial and there's no debates about it. It's very clean and clear. But if you do any digging into the atonement theory, you'll find that there are a lot of theories. And from the outset, we're not going to get into that today, but I do want to say this. I love to think of all the theories as being in symphony with one another, and that they all have biblical precedents, and you can all see them working together in unison if you want to. I will say that. But with that being said, we're going to look at the lens of looking through Jesus' life on the cross as being victorious, and that event as being one of victory. Um, and so let's stop there for a second and think about this as a good exercise for, for us to think about what victory looks like in our lives. Um, what it could mean on a day-to-day basis, what it could mean for our community, what it could mean for our country, what does victory look like for us? Our history is filled with signs symbolizing famous victories, right? One of the most famous images ever couldn't encapsulate what victory meant in World War II, right? This picture is going to stand the test of time. And as 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 Americans, I'm not American yet, but I've just applied for my citizenship, so I will be soon. But this one is one of great sentimental value in the history of this country, right? And that was a very defining moment, and that was a very, it's a picture symbolizing the victory of World War II, right? Or more recently, you may be a sports fan, Um, and uh, a Super Bowl victory might come to mind. It's a terrible picture, I know. I'm not a football fan, so I apologize. It was the best one I could find. Um, And if you're not a sports fan, maybe it's like the small day-to-day victories that you win at home, like your three-week-old sleeping by herself for an hour, right? (laughs) That could be way sweeter than a Super Bowl win for many of us right now. But when we look to Jesus, we find out what victory meant for him. And we find out how he perceived victory and how God perceives victory and what victory looks like in the kingdom of God. And so this is a picture of a sign of victory for Jesus. right? Now, you can see it's a colorful image and you might be going, I don't see many pictures of Jesus like that on the cross right? Um, That's not a morbid picture. Jesus isn't bleeding. He's not hunched over, right? He doesn't have crowns in his head. Um, There's no stormy cloud in the background. It's not a dark picture, sort of like this picture, that one, right? That's sort of what we're used to, right? When we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we normally have an image like this one come to mind? You know, Jesus is beaten. It's a very mourning, mournful, grieving type of picture, and we don't often associate Jesus's death on the cross as one as being victorious. And so, um, if we go back to the other, if we go back to the other picture, um, real quick, we'll see here Jesus is fully clothed, right? There's sort of like this halo, this ring around his head depicted. His head's not down, hunched over. He's looking up. He's sort of broad. The picture's colorful. You know, there's bright colors. Even the gods that are standing him are depicted in like a sort of like, just like a jabbing, like, oh, Jesus, you know, type of deal. And, you know, you're sort of like, what is going on in this picture? Well, what if I told you that this picture was actually one of that came in the 5th century and the other one came in the 16th century. So this was a picture that was actually floating around in the early church days and this is sort of what the early Christians saw and thought of when they pictured Jesus on the cross. For them, it wasn't so much of a morbid day, it was one of victory, right? And this is what they think about. And for them, it was mostly because they'd never divorced the... Um, Jesus' crucifixion and death with his resurrection. They were one in the same. And it was because of his resurrection that they could see his death on the cross as being one as victorious, right? That wasn't the final say in the story of Jesus and humanity. So what I'm trying to show here is not that one is bad and the other is good, but just to show you just how the narrative about one of the not one of, the most significant events in human history can change over time. And not only change, but change how we understand God, how we understand Jesus, and even allow it to shape how we live our lives to a degree. But before we get there, we've looked at that. I also want to show you some scripture verses to show you. And I'm only doing this because Jace would kill me if I didn't go to scripture, I always joke with Jace, Jace is about the Bible. I'm like, I just want to do theology. I just want to pick the scriptures that fit what I want to do. Jace is like, no. So anyways, I figured we should open the Bible. We should open the Bible today and that would be a good thing. Okay. So Isaiah 52 says, um, Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and he shall be very high. This is talking about Jesus. This is a famous scripture verse and it goes on past here. But this scripture verse is pointing us to Jesus and this is the beginning of the verse showing us and framing Jesus' death on the cross as one in which is prosperous. He will be exalted and he will be lifted high and he shall be very high. Right? And Jesus echoes this passage in John when he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, echoing Isaiah, will draw all people to myself. The book of John is sort of known in theological circles as one that centers the cross and the crucifixion as the pinnacle of the story more than any of the other ones. Which you might be going, if you've read the book of John, you might be like, that's. That's sort of like surprising because it seems so filled with the life of Jesus and Jesus' time with the disciples and what he says to the disciples. But actually what it's showing is that the cross is the fulfillment of Jesus' life, right? And so it's not a side piece to Jesus' ministry on earth. It's the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry on earth. And so when Jesus is on the cross in the book of John, John says, the final words Jesus says is, "It is finished. This is it. I have run the race. I have finished what I was come here to do—to die on the cross." Hebrews two point eight says, "Wow, I've got so many scriptures. This is great. I'm going to get good marks in Jesus' book." Okay, but we do see, uh, but we do see Him who was made for little, while lower than angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's the gospel right there, summed up in that sentence. So we've got these scripture scripture voices, verses too, that are pointing us to Jesus and showing us how his death is one of triumph. Right In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they actually celebrate the passion. It's not so much a time of mourning for the Eastern Orthodox Church, but a time of celebration because they see it as Jesus being victorious. So there's, there's two things we need to clarify as we move on. And that is, okay, so we've got this picture that Jesus' death on the cross was victorious. But we need to sort of, show why it was victorious and how he was victorious, right? Because it's not just that Jesus died on the cross that made this happen, but it was the way Jesus died on the cross, right? So it's Christ's victory on the cross that wasn't just because he died, but, he, um, but came through the way in which he died. Rowan Williams says it like this, The cross is a seal of a particular kind of life, a life which has turned away from violence, manipulation, and domination, a life in which the Son of Man is not to be served but to serve, a life in which the very act of God is made flesh and blood in a vulnerable human being. Jesus didn't die in an attempt to conquer the world through violence and domination and lies and manipulation, but he died in his love for creation till his death. It's Jesus' love for us that propels his sacrifice and obedience to death that ultimately defeats death so that we no longer need to fear death. So I wanna pause and I wanna go into that for a little bit because that also isn't often spoken about in our circles. We often hear about Jesus defeating the powers and principalities in, in, um, in the cross, right? But sometimes you don't get into why he does that or how that happens. But it's ultimately because Jesus' death removes our death in eternity. And so what happens is, We defeat, or we don't, Jesus defeats the powers and principalities by removing our fear for death so that we no longer need to be afraid of dying. Why? Because the scripture narrative is that through death we receive life. Through death we are resurrected and no one can take that away from us, not even the devil, Satan, the spirits, the dominions, the world, The powers and principalities can't do anything about that. They cannot take our death away. We have a say and we can face our death without fear because that in a way is the beginning of our eternal life with Jesus. So Jesus takes death, the ultimate thing preventing humanity from being reconciled with God, turning it into the way in which we are reconciled with God. He tramples death by dying on the cross. He removes it as the final barrier and turns it into the entrance into the kingdom of God. John Baer says it like this. The transforming power of God is demonstrated through the death of Christ, not simply by his death, but by being put to death, uh, by being put to death, but by his voluntary death, going to the cross in obedience. Because of the way Christ died, Christ was victorious in defeating the powers and principalities of darkness, voluntarily giving himself up as an innocent person. He's often depicted as the lamb. His death on the cross removed all obstacles between us and God so that me we may be reconciled to him once again. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ's victorious death on the cross, all obstacles are removed from bringing us into God's kingdom. Okay, how are we doing? Cool, I woke some of you up with that clap, awesome. Okay, <laughs> second and final big points. And this is important because this goes into how this applies to our lives and how we live victorious lives as Christians. Jesus' love is the key to his victory and the roadmap to living our lives as his disciples. In case Jesus' love on the cross for us wasn't clear enough, he tells his disciples in John 16, before he dies, exactly What love for him means. In John, Jesus tells his disciples that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus was literally going, this is how I'm going to show my love for you, by laying down my life for you. This is what it means to love one another. Sometimes Jesus' Um, mission on earth could come across as like mysterious and like, oh, what's going on? Why is Jesus not being fully transparent? Well, here Jesus is being 100% transparent. He can't say it any more simply than this, that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. Jesus is saying, this is how I'm going to show you that I love you. But he doesn't stop there. Three chapters earlier, he tells his disciples this. He says, so so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. How does Jesus love? By laying down his life for one another. You should love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We encounter Jesus and his love for us and immediately he turns us towards the other, to love one another. We can't have one without the other. We can start trying to love someone without knowing Jesus' love, but I guarantee you that will lead you to Jesus' love because you'll realize you can't do it without understanding Jesus' love. And when we are pointed to Jesus, Jesus points us to people. I will say that again because that was a good line. When we are pointed to Jesus, Jesus turns us and points us to the other, to those around us, our neighbors, people in our pews, people in the church. By the way, you can have an enemy in the church. I don't know if you knew that. To our family, to our friends, to those colleagues at work, those are people who Jesus has called us to love. John Wimber, one of the founders of the vineyard, famously said something so simple and yet it was so profound. It was sort of after the Jesus people movement had really got going, there was like a lot of like wind in their sails and stuff started happening and people started going, okay, we've got to get this in place, we've got to get these systems in place, we've got to do this, we've got to figure this out, we've got to do this. All these things started coming up and he simply said, stop, we the church and we are in the people business that is our goal we don't go past that if people don't come first in our lives we need to change our lives and let me be clear I'm not talking about the world out there I'm talking about us in here we need to arrange our lives so that we can love one another through serving one another Everything we do needs to revolve around that. So whatever whatever events we have going on, whatever checklists we have, whatever jobs we have, whatever goals we have, however we want to arrange our lives, we need to arrange them by pinning people first. If people are coming secondary in our lives, we need to go back to Jesus. See what Jesus was doing. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Jesus died for us. Jesus put people first in his life. His enemies, his friends. So I'm going to finish the story now. Um, so we're in the we're in the we're in the parking garage of the Good Samaritan um, Hospital, and I call the I call the the labor and delivery again. And at this point, I'm undone. I am feeling like I am the biggest failure. My daughter is a day old and I've already failed her. And I was in tears. I called the labor and delivery. I was like, listen, I've got a one day old daughter. I've got a wife who's just exhausted. We have nowhere to turn. Sounds bad. I literally felt like Joseph, okay? Okay. Literally, I was like, people are turning us away. There's no room in the inn. (laughs) And I was like, we have nowhere else to go. I told them, I am in your parking garage right now. And if you don't let us in, we will be here for the rest of the night without food or water. And there's no access to any food or water right now. And this lady said, okay, hang on. And she was like, okay, come on in. So we went up to the labor and delivery Room and the charge nurse um, met us at the front door. She literally, I, we were in the family, we were in the family waiting room outside. She came in, she picked up our bags, she picked up Amelia and said, I'm taking you to the room. She didn't admit us. She was like, this has never happened before in my life. She was like, I've, I, there's no blueprint book for what I'm doing right now. But she was like, I can't let you go outside. She picked up our bags. I couldn't, like, all our bags, like our luggage, our bags, She's carrying Amelia. She was like, let's go. And Irene and I are like, okay. <laughs> like crying, like, okay, we're coming. <laughs> we're coming. She takes us to the room, she sits us down. She was like, we can't provide you any medical attention, but if anything medical comes up, we're admitting you straight away. She went out, she was like, She was like, have you eaten? No, okay. She was like, there's a list of places that you can order from, and if not, we've got tons of snacks. I was like, okay. Um, Gave us water, she goes out, she brings in a lactation specialist. By the way, this lactation specialist, two hours before we just charged, very sweet lady said, you know, I often recommend first time parents just staying an extra night. And we're like, we're fine, we're fine. (laughs) And the sweet, sweet lady comes in with the charge nurse, and she's like, hi, guys. And we're like, we should have listened to you. We should have listened. She was like, no, you did what was best. I'm pretty sure she's an angel. I can't be sure. I I actually think she was an angel. And the charge nurse just sat us down, and she gave us both hugs, and she just hugged us. And I'd never been filled with so much love at that point. Well, I had, but like for me, it it just felt like, like I couldn't be loved anymore in that point. And I felt so much safer. We didn't sleep at all that night, but it didn't matter. I just felt safe, and I felt secure, and I felt like this was going to be okay. And it was because that charge nurse. I came to find out later that she. Um, dismissed the supervisor still said no and she override the supervisor's decision which is a big deal so she staked her entire job her career her income everything and risked it all for us in an ultimate act of love she put people first and she said screw the system There could have been a ton of legal liabilities, right? And I'm pretty sure that's what they were going. They're like, there's so many legal liabilities with allowing them in without being admitted, something could go wrong, all of this. She said, screw that, we're putting you first. That is a picture of the gospel. That is a picture of what it means to put people first, to love people well, to risk it for other people. So why don't you stand with me?